Thank you so much, Paul. It is a massive privilege to be here with you all this morning. You are a great-looking bunch, and uh, Melissa and the team, what a beautiful worship service that you've led. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. You are amazing, what you have given to us, what you have entrusted us with. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and our minds and our hearts today. I pray that we would fall in love with your word anew today. But I also pray, God, that we would just be challenged and burdened with the problem that still exists in this world that so many people are not able to read your word in their own language. And I pray that some might even rise up today to step up to that challenge and be a part of solving that problem. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There are... 7,097 languages spoken by the world's 7 billion people. Those aren't dialects. Those are mutually non-intelligible languages. And sorry, I said spoken. About 100 of those are signed. Of those 7,097 languages, 636 of them have a full Bible. Only 636. However, that does account for a vast majority of the world's population because I don't know what the exact number is. It's probably up in the high 80% or even 90% of the world's population that speak those 636 languages that have a whole Bible. 1,442 of those languages have a New Testament and some portions of the Old Testament, perhaps. 1,145 of those languages just have some portions of the Bible, maybe Luke's Gospel or Genesis. 3,874 languages remain. They have nothing. There's nothing in those languages. Many of them never even written. Now, not all of those need to have a Bible translation because many of those languages are spoken by just a handful of people left and there is no generation coming up that will continue to speak them. Or in many of those languages, the people in those communities are multilingual. They're able to, uh, they're fluent enough in another language that they can, they can read the Bible in a, perhaps a language of wider communication. But today, what makes my heart ache, what gets me out of bed in the morning is that there are still some 1,700 to 1,800 languages that remain that we know for a fact need to have a Bible translation project started. And you can see there a bit of a breakdown where those languages fall in the world. And those languages are spoken by 165 million people. How many of you here have been on a search for the truth in your life? You've asked yourself, what does all this mean? Yeah, just about every hand's up. If you haven't been, you are now or you will be. For me, those people, their search for the truth does not include the option of ever finding it. I walk around with this Bible, I use it as a bit of a conversation starter when I tell people and I try to connect them to the importance of this work. 
and I show them what the Bible looks like for these 165 million people. There is no narrative of the gospel. There is no story of Jesus, of a cross, of a God who sent his only begotten son, of a man who came and preached and told the truth. John 18 and 37, Jesus stands before Pilate when he's on trial and he says this. First, Pilate says to him, you're a king then, says Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the very reason I was born and came into the world. Now I have to pause right there. Because when the son of God prefaces something that he's about to say, when the Messiah, when Christ, when God Almighty prefaces what he's about to say with the reason I was born and came into the world is you want to pay attention to what comes next, yeah? And what does he say? It's to testify to the truth. This narrative of scripture that we have, the story of creation, of mankind, of Jesus coming, it's the truth. It's the only truth. I don't want to get into a whole philosophical conversation this morning about truth. I'm a PhD student right now, and a lot of what we do is talking about what is truth and how do we know truth. For me as a Christian, it becomes really easy for me, actually. <laughs> and I thank God that I don't have to define what that is. It's been done outside of me. And that's why this is so important. Let me ask you guys a question. How many people here, just curious, how many people here have been directly impacted by the ministry of Bible translation? Anyone here just been like a direct recipient of the work of Bible translation? It's a trick question, folks. <laughs> if your hand's not up, you have never encountered this book before, or you're fluent in biblical Hebrew and biblical Greek. <laughs> in 2011, a very cool anniversary kind of snuck by. I didn't hear too much about it, but it was 400 years prior, in 1611, that the King of England, James I, published the authorized version of the English Bible. It wasn't something that just came out of nowhere, though. It came after over 200 years of intense persecution for anyone who dared to translate the Latin scriptures into the English language, be it on paper or even the spoken word. In the late 1300s, a man by the name of John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English from the Latin Vulgate. You see, that was the only Bible translation that was allowed by Rome in the churches. Wycliffe was a professor and a theologian. He taught at the University of Oxford. He was eventually kicked out of Oxford, though. He was a reformer. And furthermore, because of all the common people in his day couldn't read the Bible in Latin, he set out to translate it into English. Getting the first translation of the English Bible to people was no small task. It took 10 months to hand copy the translation. And if you wanted to buy one, it would cost you about six months' wages. But despite these obstacles, Wycliffe and his followers succeeded in getting copies all over England. But wherever they were found, 
by the church and by the educated church leaders, they were burned. And anyone involved in working with Wycliffe, anyone caught with him was seized, arrested, and they were publicly executed by being burnt alive at the stake for heresy. The church was so furious with Wycliffe that 44 years after his death, the Pope ordered his remains to be dug up and the ashes thrown into the River Swift as a warning to anybody who dared to try to come along and follow suit. In 1407, guys, in England, a law was actually passed that made it illegal to translate the Bible into English. On April 4th, 1519, in a place called Little Park in Coventry, close to Smithfield, six working-class men and a widow were publicly executed by being burned to death for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. They didn't even write it down. Smithfield was full, just near to the famous Tower of London, was filled with people who were burned to death. Why? So that you and I could have the English Bible. In the 100 years following Wycliffe's death, two major events took place that changed history. The city of Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Empire. Constantinople was the seat of Christianity. Today, of course, we know it as Istanbul, the largest city in Turkey. And it was significant because the fall of Constantinople resulted in a diaspora and, and all that knowledge spread out across Europe including knowledge of Greek and Hebrew and the biblical languages. The second amazing thing that happened in that hundred years after Wycliffe's death was somebody invented this really, really neat little machine. It was even more significant than the iPhone. Does anybody know what it was? Yeah, the Gutenberg Press. Does anybody know what the first thing that came off of that press was? The first book was the Bible. You guys are smart. Do you go to university or something? Are you guys still with me? You still with me? Sorry for all this history, but I've just set the background so that I can introduce you to my greatest earthly hero. We're allowed to have a hero here on earth, okay? I know Jesus is all of our hero, but on earth you can have a hero. His name is William Tyndale. And I, I, I didn't plan this. <laughs> But this guy is my hero. He was a phenomenal Greek scholar. It's said that he was so well-spoken in eight different languages that no one knew what his mother tongue was. Tyndale was a tutor for a very influential Englishman, high guy, important dude. <laughs> Don't know his name, forgot that part. But there was some clergymen at his boss's house one day and they got into an argument about issues around the Reformation and about salvation by grace and versus works. And, and this arrogant clergyman finally said to Tyndale, we're better off with the Pope's laws than with God's. Tyndale's response has gone down in the annals of history. He said this, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the holy scriptures than thou dost. You have to say that with a British accent. It doesn't carry the same weight. Mind you, he was from Gloucester, so it was probably, cause a boy to drive it to plow. <laughs> Can you imagine, in the climate of his day, 
This is an educated man in the climate of his day setting out to translate the Bible. It's a suicide mission. And when the guy sets out, he had enough gall. The first person, he says, I need help to do this. So who does he go to? He goes to Bishop Cuthbert Tunstall, the head of the, the, the church in England. Rome's guy for the church. Bishop Cuthbert Tunstall, who was also a Greek scholar. And he says, hey, Cuth, will you help? Well, he freaks out. Tyndale winds up exiling himself to the mainland because a price gets put on his head. But as a result of Tyndale's commitment and faithfulness in 1525, the Tyndale New Testament became the very first English Bible to go into print. With the help of some good friends in the ports, he smuggled these Bibles back to England in sacks of flour and cotton. They spread all over England. Tunstall became furious. He enlisted a man by the name of Augustine Packington, and he gave Packington access to the church's coffers. And he says, here's all the money you need. Do whatever you can to put an end to this guy. Packington was charged with going out and buying up all of these Bibles. And you know what he did with them? They brought them back to St. Paul's Cathedral where they were burned. I mean, I drive past churches today and you see the signs out there. You know what's going on on Sunday. Just imagine, this Sunday we're burning Bibles. Come, bring a friend. Can you believe this? We forget. We forget. What Tunstall didn't know, though, <laughs> was that Packington was Tyndale's friend. And Augustine Packington and Tyndale were in cahoots with one another. And Packington was overcharging the bishop for the Bibles, and for every one Bible bought and burnt, Three more were printed and distributed. <laughs> now that's some really cool God funding right there. I love how that works. Eventually Tyndale was betrayed and handed over to the church authorities. He was strangled and burned at the stake in 1536. Tyndale's last words were, Oh Lord. Picture him standing there on that stake, on that platform. The fire's coming up, consuming him. And this is the last thing that goes down in history that he says, O oh Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. This prayer was answered just three years later in 1539 when King Henry VIII finally allowed and even funded the printing out of an English Bible known as the Great Bible. And those of you who know your history know that his motives weren't entirely pure. Throughout the rest of the 16th century, the status of the English Bible wavered back and forth until 1604 when King James commissioned a new translation into the English language. 28 years ago, I sat in a chapel service in Bible college. I was studying missions. I wanted to be a missionary. I was being taught about how poor theology is in the world. I heard things like, the church in Africa is thousands of miles wide, but only inches deep. We need to train more pastors, put more Bible colleges up. And I thought that's what I needed to do to help spread the word of God in developing parts of the world where people are unreached. We throw this word unreached around quite a bit, hey? And I've heard a lot of different definitions of it. I subscribe to a definition 
by an African theologian. His name is Kwame Bediako, and he says that no language should be considered reached until they have the word of God in their own, no people should be considered reached until they have the word of God in their own language, that they can read it and build their thought life upon it in their community, in their church, in their relationship with God. And I agree 100% with that definition. 28 years ago, I sat in that chapel and a missionary came, just like today, in a chapel service like this. His name was Ross Arrington. And he shared the same numbers that I shared with you this morning. Of course, back then, it was 1989, and there was 3,500 languages, projects that needed to be started. We've come a long way. It's awesome. There's 2,200 language projects going on in the world right now. First time in history, more than that needed. I ran out of that chapel service. I said, where do I sign up? I've never looked back. And I had a dream that went something like this. If I live my whole life, Danny Foster lives his whole life on this earth, and when it's all said and done, if there's a language community that has like an alphabet, that has some little stories that they've been telling their kids for generations, that has some Bible stories, that has a Bible, then my whole entire life was worth living. And that was a dream that God put in my heart. One of my first exposures to Bible translation was so powerful. And it was there that I learned that Bible translation wasn't about me, some expert, going in and showing people how it's done. But it's about going in, being part of a community. And I don't know what you guys think when you hear the word linguistics. Sounds like this academic, geeky kind of thing. But, but the work that I did, I learned I went on a journey with people to discover God in a whole new language. And I had my understanding and my reality completely changed I've had that happen so many times. Let me give you a little quick example here. You know, there are, there are many words for hand and arm and fingers around the world. And they're not all the same. You see, words slice up the world into chunks that comprise our reality. I'm going to get a little philosophical here for a moment. Everything that comes in through your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth, your senses, your touch, lands in some word. And language forms your reality. Some people say you don't even think until you have a language. In this word hand, in some languages it starts here and ends here, and others there's words that start here and end before the fingers, and it amazes me because this is this universal thing that barring some tragic accident we all possess, humans all over the world. This is not a, cult a cultural artifact. <laughs> it's an arm and a hand and some fingers. And yet we don't refer to them all the same way. In Swahili, these are the same as toes, same word. Now, if we can't agree on something like that, what hope is there for things like hope, mercy, grace, repentance, forgiveness, love? But I learned that as you seek these things out and you walk with people, there was this one project I was interning on, on Sabot, the Sabot people on the, the border of Kenya and Uganda, and they were looking for the words for repentance and forgiveness, and this ceremony took place where a guy had been accused of stealing land from one of his relatives. And they caught him and found him guilty, the elders, he'd been charged, and so he's there, gets down on his knees, and he tilts his head to the side, and he says something like, it, it meant, I give you my neck. And the owner had the choice, he had two choices, could pull out his sword and slit his throat and kill him. Or he could say something back to him that completely released him. 
And the missionary is talking with a Sabot man who'd been a Christian for 30 years, moved off ages ago to Nairobi, grew up in the faith, but read the Bible only in Swahili. And he was helping the translation team. And the guy says, what's, what's going on here? And he says, well, yeah, he's only got these two choices. And he says, what you got to realize is in, in, in our minds, these are both just as final. Now I get the finality of the one. <laughs> if you take this guy's neck off, <laughs> I get the finality of that. But the other, to release him, even reinstated him as an heir again. And the guy says, those are the words. The missionary says, these are the, these are the words we want for forgiveness and repentance. And, the, and this, this believer says, no, you don't understand. Like, this thing can never be brought up again. And he says, that's what Christ did on the cross for us. This guy breaks down because for the first time in his life, he gets it in his heart language. And me, then, just like you now, we've all had our understanding of God expanded in just a little cooler way because of that one project on Mount Elgon. Somebody said to me once, you know why God gave us 7,100 languages? Because one can't contain him. And everyone is a unique way and expression of who he is and a unique worship of our God. And those 17 to 1,800 languages that are still out there needing to be translated are going to reveal and glorify God in a whole new and unique way. There's a verse I love because it supports this work so strongly. It's a guarantee that this ministry is successful and it goes like this. It's in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. And I like this because the prophet starts with something that we humans can understand. He says, the rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. We get that. We see it every season. <laughs> they cause grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer. Mm-hmm. Over and over again. And bread for the hungry. And then the prophet continues on. Okay, you get the physical law. Now here comes the spiritual one. It's the same with my word. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere I send it. That's why I love doing this. Just quickly here, I know my time is out, but I got a, a couple slides I want to show you. Um, just how God multiplies our dreams. My dream was to serve this one language community. I wound up in southern Tanzania. There's a language map of Tanzania. It'll fit in Ontario. There's 45 million people that live there. They speak 126 indigenous languages. My wife and I got to start two cluster projects, one in the south, one in the north, that served 19 language communities in our first six years on the field. This year, the Kinga, one of the languages in the south, are typesetting their New Testament. Four and a half million people speak those languages. That's the province of British Columbia getting God's word for the first time. Cool. <laughs> I got to be a part of that. Today I have the privilege of giving leadership to the Canada Institute of Linguistics, or one of the world's largest global training programs for people who want to work in language development and Bible translation. I've talked a lot about... about uh, Bible translation, but there's a whole social justice side to this. I'm doing PhD work right now on literacy and the mother tongue. Of course, you, the Bible doesn't help people if they don't know how to read. But I've been able to be a part in most of these languages. We're seeing children for the very first time, they get to learn to read and write in their language and not in a colonial language. 
And the best part is, is when they do learn how to read and write in their language, they learn to read and write in English even better because they get a foundation. Oh, there's so much I'd love to just tell you guys about this and how cool it is. But at the end of the day, the most important thing for me will always be getting this into people's hands and uncaging the word of God. I want to close with a verse, Matthew 13, 16 to 17. I just came across this a few weeks ago. I, um, I, I love the Bible and I, I, I try to read through it. I do read through it every year now. Thank God for you version. If you've not heard of that app, download it. I'm not getting any commission for this, but uh, it's just one of the great ways to just immerse yourself in Scripture. But I came across this verse just the other day because when I read through the Bible, and maybe you've felt this same frustration too, I read these conversations that people like, like Moses had with God or Abraham had with God or David had with God. And I say, God, I want to talk to you like that. I mean, I'm trying to make decisions every day. These guys would call up the priest. He'd get out his marbles, rum them, thumb them, whatever. And God would say, okay, go around the back of the mountain Thursday at 9 a.m., flank left, set up a thing there, and boom, you go in and you'll have the victory. I'm like, God, I want some of that. Have you ever wondered, like, why don't we get to talk to God like that? Listen to what Jesus says to the disciples here. Matthew 13, 16, and 17. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. I tell you the truth. Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And they longed to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. Think about that. Moses didn't know Jesus in his lifetime. Neither did David. We get, okay, this is not the good example here, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> we have the word of God and we get to see the whole narrative from beginning to end and how it all fits together. We are so privileged. Many of us have been raised in this and buried in it from day one. And yet we take it all for granted. Guys, I hope, I hope this is spoken to you today and you will appreciate the word of God in a greater way and also the importance of getting it to those who don't have it. And of course, my last little plug here is we are prepared to train you and help you go out with undergraduate and graduate training. We have aggressive financial aid to get you out into Bible translation ministry. If you take advantage of it at the master's level, it can be free. We definitely are coming alongside and working on uh, scholarship programs uh, yeah, for, for our undergraduate program as well. So please, I'll be at the back if you want to talk to me more a bit about that. And you've always got Paul here, director of CanIL at Trindale. At uh, Tyndale. Trindale, that's a new Trinity Tyndale. Anyways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this amazing morning and for the time that we have to spend with you today. God, move in our hearts and our lives. May we never take for granted what we have, what a cost it came at. And I pray that you'd speak to us every day through your word. But Lord, I pray for those 165 million people who still have nothing. I pray, God, you said pray for laborers, and I pray for laborers today that you would raise people up to come and serve and join and be a part of that. In Jesus' name, amen.